Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you're having an awesome day. I'm Christy, and I've always had a fascination for some of the darker sides of life, from true crime to conspiracies and the paranormal. I also believe that knowledge is one of the most powerful gifts we possess. So since I already spend so much of my own time consuming information about these topics, I want to share them, get in on the conversation, and see if together we can learn from them. When you hear the term serial killer, there may be a few names that come to mind. To me, the scariest part is learning how many more there actually are than the average person would actually know about. I heard about Donald Peewee Gaskins in high school when a friend was reading his autobiography, Final Truth, the Autobiography of Peewee Gaskins. I went to Barnes and Nobles and had them order a copy for me. There were not many copies made and it took a while to track down. I could not put it down. I was so fascinated by how awful life could actually be. I was a teenager at this time, so, you know, I was quite naive to what the world actually was like. I think his book truly made me start to wonder and think about how that happens. How does a person turn out to actually not only fantasize about doing these awful, disgusting acts, but to actually follow through, plan them out, gather the tools, track down the person, pick them up, take them out to the woods, and then do what I will be getting into later on in the story. There were so many times when he could have stopped and thought, this is bad, or this is wrong, maybe I shouldn't be doing this, but he seems to have no remorse, no empathy at all, and like that voice in his head does not exist. This story is awful. Peewee was not provided any guidance during his formative years and was mostly allowed to roam about, do whatever he desired. But if he was caught misbehaving, his parental figures would beat him as punishment. He quickly learned at a very young age to associate pain with pleasure, and his entire life was a series of child abuse, prostitution, violence, sexual assaults, murder, and just some of the most unimaginable horrors. From pretty much the beginning of this story to the end will be filled with all of those topics and more, so please be advised. Most of the information that I'm going to discuss in this case comes from his autobiography. When Peewee was finally arrested for the last time, he worked with an author to write his tell-all autobiography. He would write letters to the author about things he remembers from his entire life, from childhood to his crimes, and the author compiled them together, but kept everything in Peewee's own words. Peewee dropped out of primary school, so the author kept his grammatical errors and spelling errors and allowed the story to be truly told from Peewee's perspective. And personally, I do feel like you can kind of feel him telling you the story due to that. Some of the quotes I will be sharing will have these errors in them as well as you'll see. As I feel it is necessary to state, I'm not a legal professional. I do have a paralegal degree and have worked as a legal assistant but I cannot give legal advice and would not want to. My advice to anyone is to always seek the advice of a licensed attorney. Any information that I discuss or state is alleged unless otherwise proven in a court of law. I am presenting this information for entertainment purposes and for open discussion about information that is already made public. On March 31st, 1933, Eula Parrott, a 15-year-old girl gave birth to Donald Henry Peewee Gaskins Jr., allegedly named after his father, Donald Henry Gaskins, in Florence County, South Carolina. There is not much known about his father, 
but he gave her financial support for Pee-wee until she married her next husband. Pee-wee claims that he wasn't raised by anyone. His dad wasn't in the picture, and his mom and stepfather did not take care of him at all. He didn't even know his own real name, and from birth, he was always called Pee-wee or Junior. He was significantly smaller than his peers and would remain small in stature comparably throughout his life. He lived outside of Leo, South Carolina, which is a small town west of Myrtle Beach in Georgetown. Only when he was later sent to the reform school for teen boys did his mother admit that his name was not Junior Parrot, which was her current last name, but was actually Donald Henry Gaskins Jr. His mother told him that the reason his biological father gave her money was to keep her quiet that he was his father because he was very well off and his family would not approve of her. But she believed he would have married her if the circumstances were different. To me, it seems she was either quite naive or was feeding a lie to her son with more of a rosy color than the actual truth of the circumstances. He says that he had a lot of stepdads while he was young and he called them all sir, but never bothered to get to know any of their names. She never married any of them, but when she finally did, he was described as one mean son of a bitch. He used to beat Pee-wee, but Pee-wee also claims that everyone did. His uncles, the other stepdads, and all the kids that he went to school with because of his size. At the age of one, he allegedly drank a bottle of kerosene. It is reported that he had convulsions until he was around the age of three from this, which may have also caused brain damage that was not as detectable at that time as it is now, as the technologies have, as I'm sure you know, only exponentially improved. We didn't start even performing CT scans, which is the procedure used to view different areas inside of the body without actually having to surgically cut through the skin until the 1970s. Around the age of 10, he met some other boys from the town and they found an abandoned house that they would meet at and they called it their clubhouse. They would masturbate, engage in sex with each other and animals, as well as smoke cigarettes, talk crap, and fight each other. The boys were doing a lot of inappropriate and bad things, and when they would get caught, they would be beaten by many of the adults involved, including their parents, any victim's parents, teachers, and even their preacher. He started to resent women at this time, believing it was their fault for being attractive and flaunting it in front of him while beating him up making fun of him and him knowing all along that if he retaliates, he will get beaten. He said that most of his life wasn't bad. Once he dropped out of school around the age of 10 to 12 years old, he stayed at home and helped on the farm and did his chores. And while his mother eventually married a man who he claims was very cruel, he mostly stayed out of trouble and got along with his stepbrothers and sisters. He enjoyed learning how things worked and would often help fix things. He had an interest in cars and mechanics and on Saturdays was allowed to work with a mechanic in town. He claims that no matter how good things were, he always had this awful, painful, burning sensation that he described as a ball of lead rolling around in his gut. He then met his two best friends, Danny and Marsh, and they were later coined as the Troubled Trio. At a young age, he was associating pain and fear with sexual arousal. He saw a snake kill a mouse at a sideshow carnival, and all the audience was told that the cobra had just been fed the night before and wouldn't be hungry for at least a week, yet it still killed the mouse and then went and curled up to sleep, not eating it. 
Pee-wee at this young age found himself to be aroused while observing this, but he remembers noticing that his mother and stepfather and the others that were there were all appalled and frightened from the scene, making him confused. Then a few years later, he and his two friends started their group, the Trouble Trio, and they would break into homes and steal valuables and sell them. With the profits that they made from these heists, they would visit prostitutes, which were much older women, and soon they decided they wanted to see what sex with someone closer to their age would be like. So they lured one of the boys, Marsh, sisters, to their hideout, and the three boys gang-raped her repeatedly. When her parents found out, two of the boys, Pee-wee and Marsh, were taken to a shed, hung upside down naked, and were beaten with shovels and other things until they were bruised, bloody, and broken. Pee-wee recalls that this made him extremely sexually aroused. Danny, the third boy, after the sexual assault on Marsha's sister, had immediately gone home and told his father that he and the boys had consensual sex with the girl, and now, because she's younger, he was afraid that her parents might find out and threaten and want to punish him and the other boys. So, when Marsha's parents went to Danny's house after the beating that they had delved out onto Pee-wee and Marsh, Danny's father was waiting on the porch with a shotgun and told them he was on his son's side and that the girl would heal up and be okay, so the rest of them left. After this incident, Marsh actually ran away and Danny with his dad decided they needed to get out of town and they packed up and moved a couple days later. Pee-wee was very upset about losing his best friends, but went back to the hideout where the other boys paid him respect due to the reputation that he gained with the troubled trio. He then met a man at the service station where he assisted the mechanic named Walt, who was from the naval base in North Charleston. Together, they concocted some plans to break into homes and steal things to then sell. After about three months of this scheme, Pee-wee chose a house that was close to his, and he knew the family and knew that they would be going to a funeral and would be out all day. When he broke in through the window, there was a girl he knew was standing in the living room with a hatchet. She asked him what he was doing there and then swung the hatchet at him. He ran out of the house and tripped in the yard. She caught up to him and swung at him again and he grabbed it away from her and struck her arm that she had outstretched to protect herself. He then used the blunt side to strike her in the head, knocking her unconscious, and then he hit her a couple more times in the back until she was not moving. He then heard someone coming out of the back door of the house and he took off running, barely making it to the woods as he heard the gun go off and heard the buckshot litter the leaves around him. When he came out of the other side, Walt was way down the road in the car and at that moment, Pee-wee knew that he didn't even know the guy's last name or anything about him except that he was a quote-unquote chicken. Pee-wee was easily identified and after walking home, the sheriffs showed up to take him to jail. He was sent to the South Carolina Industrial School for Boys. When he arrived, he quickly found out that at a certain time, the doors were locked and no one was coming in or out unless there was a fire alarm for an actual fire. He said this is when they were sent to the showers and the older, larger boys would choose which of the newer boys they wanted to abuse first. The largest and the oldest of the boys told Pee-wee he needed him to come to his bed after lights out for sex. Pee-wee read in the school rule booklet that any boy caught engaging in sexual conduct with one another would be severely punished. So he believed that he would get in trouble, and so he didn't go, and the other boy did not come to his bed. The next day, no one spoke to Pee-wee, and he thought everything was fine. 
Then in the showers, a large group of boys attacked him and sexually assaulted him as a group. Since he was so small for his age, he was an easy target, but refused to do what they wanted him to do, and about 20 boys attacked him in the shower. They dragged him back to his bunk and told him that the next time they tell him what to do, he has two choices, to either do as he's told or be prepared for these attacks to be a regular occurrence. He thought about reporting it, but that would mean that every night at lockdown, he would be placed into solitary confinement, and he heard that they were dank, dark, and there was no access to the radio or anything, so he chose to be silent. The first time he ran away, when he was brought back, he was beaten with a whip and then sentenced to hard labor, where he would clean the school and the breakfast dishes with the others on hard labor duty, where they would dig trenches, And once they dug a bunch of trenches, they would fill them up and then dig others until supper time, after which they washed those dishes and then washed down the mess hall again. Then they went to their cells where they had to clean them and then shower. Then any infractions they received that day, they would get a certain number of lashings and were forced to strip naked and bend over for the lashings. Then given clean clothes for the next day, 30 minutes of lights on for them to do whatever in their cells and were given a clean bucket for the night as the isolation cells did not even have toilets. It was usually around 11 p.m. by this point and Pee-wee was said by the time he laid down he was quickly asleep and like I said he is just a child at this time. After his three months of hard labor and isolation were up he returned to the normal dorm where he tried to win the favor once more with Poss, the leader boy. Soon after Poss started trading him around to the other boys who he says were meaner than he remembered, and some would beat him up even when he did everything they asked. So he would hatch plans after plan to run away. He ran from the school multiple times, and each time he was found and brought back with the punishments gaining severity with each return, both from guards and the older boys. On his last escape, he met up with Poss, who had already been released and got a job working with him in the circus. It was the 1950s, and he met a young girl named Mary. He begged her to marry him, but she said he had to finish reform school first, which was just a few more months. She also said that she was not gonna go live with the carnival, and she wanted a real house and a husband with children. He married Mary on January 22nd of 1951, and then surrendered himself to to return to the school. He was put into isolation for 24 hours a day, except to take a shower and empty his bucket. Once he was released, he moved in with his wife and they had a child. In 1952, he got involved with some locals and quickly got involved in illegal activities, including burning down barns. And when some local girl taunted him, saying they know about the illegal barn fires that he was involved in, he attacked one of the girls with a hammer. He was sent to the South Carolina Penitentiary for this attack for six years. This was also one of his first experiences with black inmates as a reform school was segregated to different schools depending on race. The state penitentiary was also segregated, but not in separate jails altogether. Instead, the dorms were separated by race and the black inmates had a separate line in the cafeteria and their tables were separated and partitioned from one another. The state pen also had a similar type of ranking system among the inmates that Pee Wee was subjected to at the boys' school. 
Again, he was exposed to the same life as in the reform school and was sexually assaulted and passed around within the jail. And they were even rougher than the younger boys. He was often beaten and tortured during the sexual assaults. And I decided only to talk about the race issues there because of the fact that this is what South Carolina was like at this time. And I think it's important to understand the entire picture of everything. So after about six months of being abused by the quote unquote power men in the pen, he was deciding if he could escape and run away. But after realizing it would take way too long to facilitate that plan and he couldn't take being someone's plaything any longer. So he decided he needed to become one of these power men. The meanest man in the pen was Hazel Brazel. Pee-wee decided he needed to take Brazel out to show he was someone not to be messed with. So Pee-wee decided maybe if he did something so vile that he made a name for himself among the inmates, they may leave him alone since he couldn't physically fight them off. Brazel was a leader of this larger group of violent prisoners. So Pee-wee decided to start going to Brazel's cell every day with a gift of some sort, usually a sandwich or something to gain his trust. Eventually, he was allowed into the cell alone with Brazel. Brazel was naked in his cell and moved to use the toilet. When Gaskins went to hand him the sandwich, he quickly pulled a knife and stabbed it into Brazel's throat. He always wondered what it would be like to kill someone, and this was his first kill. He later said he felt nothing. After he killed Brazel, he was gifted his own quote-unquote boy as he made a deal with Arthur, who, with Brazel gone, was the head guy and made Pee-wee his number two. He received an additional three years added to his sentence for this murder, but also gained the respect that he sought and was left alone by the other prisoners. I can't believe he just got only three years for murder. I know that the man he murdered must have been a terrible person, um, but still, that's crazy to me. Anyways, by 1953, Mary told Pee-wee that she wanted a divorce. He was broken up about this and desperately wanted to escape prison to have the chance to change her mind. He truly loved her and his daughter and didn't want anything else but to be with them, as he says. So he started to try to figure out how to escape, and by 1955, he was able to hitch a ride on a garbage truck and escape. He then began this cycle of escaping, causing trouble, getting caught, and returned to jail. He was constantly driven by his sexual drive while completely lacking any morals. He also would try, at times, to earn an honest living and live a quote-unquote normal life, but being uneducated and having only certain qualifications to rely on, he found it difficult to make a living wage in South Carolina. Yet, it was a place he knew best, so he always returned. He escaped jail and joined a circus where he started dating a contortionist in Tennessee who actually was also running from the law, unbeknownst to Pee Wee. She convinced him to take some cigarettes and bail money to an inmate that was in the jail nearby the motel that they were staying in. Then she stole his car while he was distracted and disappeared. Pee-wee was arrested in the motel that night for assisting in the escape of the inmate brother, only he was actually her husband and the pack of cigs was a razor blade that the husband used on a guard. Once again, Pee-wee received an additional three years in his sentence, so escaping jail is equivalent to murder sentencing-wise, I guess. This time, he decided that he would stay in jail and he finished out his sentence um, and then returned to South Carolina, but it was not long before he returned to trouble once more. He ended up working for a traveling pastor, 
The pastor received different contributions from the congregations that he would visit, and at each new congregation, he would sell those things to use towards his cause. Pee-wee helped drive him around and sell those things while the preacher did his sermons. Pee-wee used this opportunity to scope out the locations and find homes to later return to, break into, and steal things, and then sell them or fence them, as he called it. Pee-wee complained that the only bad part of this job was that he didn't know where to meet women in these towns, except through prostitutes, since most women were not attracted to him naturally by his height. I know that the term prostitutes is frowned upon now, um, but that is what is in his book, so that is why I'm using that phrase, because that is how it is quoted in his book. He stated that he hated having to pay for sex, but eventually in 1962, he married a woman named Jerry Dolores. He also had married another woman on one of his other escapes from prison previously for about two weeks before leaving her without any explanation and never seeing her again. I don't know if that divorce was ever finalized, Jerry was barely 18, and Pee-wee said this was quite older than he preferred. Ew. But this kept him from having to purchase the services of the ladies of the night, as she would sometimes travel with him and he would be able to turn away any offers to pay for services, just knowing she was at home waiting for him the other times. But as his life continues to repeat itself, eventually he couldn't control himself any longer, and he attacked 12-year-old Patsy. He knew her all her life, and when he saw her, he was constantly overcome by his nasty desires. He knew that her family was out one day, so he went to her house, and she invited him in. He started sharing all of his sexual exploits from his life, and then all of the people he hurt and killed, and she became very scared and started to cry, of course. <laughs> he then forced her to remove her clothing and raped her with threatening to kill her if she didn't do as he said and then kidnapped her, bringing her to his home. When her aunt returned home, she saw the girl's bloody sheets and knew instantly what had happened and who had done it. Authorities found him in his home pretending to be asleep and she was hiding behind a dresser in the corner. He was charged with statutory rape, not criminal rape, which again, what the hell? He was sent to jail where they uncuffed him and locked him in a room to await his attorney and the prosecutor but he jumped out of a window and escaped even before sentencing. He made his way to the area in North Carolina where the Lumbee indigenous people live. He made his way into their community and ended up getting married, this time to a 17-year-old Lumbee girl named Lenny. With each of these quick marriages, he was extremely turned on by the girls, but they would not allow him to have intercourse without marriage. So he would marry them, have his way, and then in some cases just get bored and leave. So this was this time he lived with her and her parents for about three years before he eventually decided to bail and disappeared without a word. He called his other wife, Jerry, and convinced her to meet him in Savannah, Georgia. The two went to Florida looking for Poss. When they arrived, Pee-wee learned that Poss's wife and children had died in a house fire and Poss had then killed himself. The others in the carnival that had helped Pee-wee in the past also had either been a caught in their schemes and arrested or had long run away never to be heard from again. Jerry also told Pee-wee things were not working out between them and the next day he planned to take her to Savannah so she could take a bus from there back to Lake City, South Carolina. As he was headed back to North Carolina, some cops tried to pull him over for speeding and he led them on a chase before wrecking the car in the swamps. 
which allowed him to escape through the swamp as officers wouldn't go deep enough to find him. He made his way back to the Lumbee Reserve and back to Lenny, where he made up some story to manipulate her into keeping him around. He took her to dinner and they had sex and he fell asleep. But he woke up to officers arresting him as Lenny had called the cops and reported his whereabouts. And good for her. He was again caught and given six years for the attack on Patsy and two years for escaping. He no longer needed to make a name for himself in prison as his reputation preceded him, allowing him to serve the sentence quietly without incident, eventually leading to him being paroled within four years. <laughs> Which really, our prison system is super amazing. But anyways, and that was sarcasm. Once released from prison, this time he again returned to South Carolina. It was 1968 and he was 35 years old. He began driving up and down the South Carolina highways looking for cheap bars and easy opportunities for prostitution or one-night affairs. But if a woman were to reject him, he would become incredibly enraged. He again described this rage feeling like heavy, hot lead rolling around in his gut. He says it's an intolerable pain that goes from his gut and rips through his spine up into his head and then settles back down in his gut. He said this pain would make him very moody and mean and when he started to feel this way he knew he had to get far away from people he loved and cared about like his wife or children because he didn't want to harm them. This pain and rage led him to act out violently and oftentimes his violence incorporated sexual acts. He started to pick up hitchhiking women and would try to ask them for sexual favors and would offer money, but if they rejected him, he would pull over and let them out of the car. Eventually, he started to get angry at the ones that rejected him, thinking that they thought they were better than him. He began fantasizing about wanting to string up the women that rejected him and torture them. September in 1969, he picked up a girl from Myrtle Beach who was hitchhiking to Charleston. She became increasingly creeped out by him and asked him to let her out of the side of the highway. He turned down a dirt road, stopped, and stared at her, and decided then that she was going to die. Quote, If she was dead, she couldn't never tell the law or nobody nothing. So once I had made up my mind and decided that she was going to die anyhow, I could do anything I wanted with her. Anything. I kept smiling and draped my arm over the seat and waited. She smiled back at me and turned to reach for her duffel bag, unquote. That is when he attacked her. He beat her and then dragged her out of the car, ripped her clothes off, and using a large knife that he kept on himself, he sliced off one of her nipples and began to chew on it, then forced her to also put it in her mouth, which caused her to begin throwing up, which enraged him, and he began to violently beat her and sexually assault her. He then used her clothing to cover her where she was bleeding and then put her in the trunk of his car, telling her to be quiet and he would let her live. He stated, quote, I once read in a book about the Nazi death camps that the best way to get somebody to cooperate when you plan on killing them is to promise them that if they do what you tell them to do, they won't die. And if you can take my word for it, it works, unquote. He drove out to the swamps where he knew she would sink beneath the boggy, murky waters. He bound her up with a clothesline still alive and breathing. He then used a knife to sodomize her and slice the skin separating her anus from her vagina, making them one. She was in so much unimaginable pain through this. 
He stated in his book that he wanted so badly to remove her gag to hear her scream, but he knew that the sound would carry through the dead quiet of night, allowing more chance for him to get caught. So he didn't. He then threw her into the swamp where she quickly sank beneath the water, never to be seen again. He says he found over $300 in her things and wasn't sure why she was hitchhiking. She also had an ID on her and he thinks her name was Leela, either spelled L-E-E-L-A or L-I-L-A, from up northeast U.S., possibly Massachusetts. He said he never kept anything from the victims that could be traced back to them, just any cash they had or items that couldn't be used as evidence. He gathered her items together in her duffel bag, added rocks to the bag, and threw it into the marsh with her body, where it sank beneath the surface. I know she's at peace now, but how absolutely vile and horribly awful those last moments of her life were. He then drove to a truck stop and ordered a steak, stating that the hot lead feeling was no longer there. Quote, From then on, whenever the pain came back, I knowed what to do to get rid of it. Unquote. After this attack, he decided to plan out his attacks more carefully. He started driving up and down the highways, looking for isolated areas to commit his crimes of violence, going to hardware stores for supplies needed to carry out these attacks, and dispose of the evidence after the fact. He said it was about every six weeks where the pain would return, and he would pick up a hitchhiker and take them to one of the secluded areas that he earlier scoped out where he knew he wouldn't be disturbed. No two attacks were the same. He fantasized and then acted out those horrible fantasies, about every six weeks finding another victim to torture, each in a different vile and disturbing way. Some he stated he would burn, some he would cut. He stated he ran a cable, quote, in and out of her and hung her up by it, unquote. He pumped a girl full of water until it came out of her nose and mouth, which killed her quickly, which he didn't expect. So he only did that one time. Quote, I preferred for them to last as long as possible, unquote. He also stated in the book, quote, I take my time, and when I finished, I usually kill them the same way that I did the first one, weighing them down and drowning them, taking care of killing and burying them both at the same time, unquote. By October of 1970, he committed about 10 of these coastal murders, as he called them, he used them as his practice runs to perfect his techniques. Then he started committing what he calls his serious murders, which were people that were closer to him, which could lead back to him much easier. Committed most of these in Sumter and Florence County in South Carolina. The first of these serious murders was his own niece and her friend. He picked them up after being out drinking. They wanted to sober up, before going home since they were only 15. He suggested they come back to his place with him and take a cold shower. When he attacked one of them, the other hit him with a two by four and they, they tried to escape. He caught them before they escaped and he killed them both. He drowned one and beat the other and then disposed of them. Because of his reputation and connection to the girls, he was a prime suspect. But due to them not finding the bodies and no evidence to connect him, he was not tried for this murder for quite some time. In December of 1970, Peggy Catino was a daughter of a state representative and was his alleged next victim, who was found beaten and burned in the woods. Another serial killer was blamed for her death, but later Gaskins shared details about her murder that were never made public. Her body was covered in what we thought 
to be cigarette burns. McGaskin stated that he actually slowly trickled acid over her body. Then there was Martha Ann Dix. She would hang out around the service station that he worked at, and she would joke with the guys and be loud and crude. And then she started joking that she was pregnant with Pee-wee's baby. Others started to make fun of him for it. After he asked her to quit a few times and it escalated, he asked her to come to his place to hook up. And she agreed, so he took her to the place and forced her to take a handful of random pills that he pilfered. She overdosed quickly and he dumped her in a ditch. She was a black woman and she was also into women and he made it very clear in his book that he had issues with both of these things. But he says he killed her because she was loud and making fun of him. He had many of these convenience kills where people got in his way or made him upset while still committing the coastal kills which were to satisfy his desires. The urge to do so started to become more and more frequent. Each time he felt like he was given some signs that this urge was going to return, and so he would use his coastal killing method to help satisfy those urges. He truly separated these two different types of killing like they mean something different. Ann Colberson was hitchhiking to Atlanta from Myrtle Beach. He picked her up and took her to his tenant house and barn outside of Sumter. He kept her prisoner and subjected her to terrible things while he had his way for several days before he finally couldn't take her crying any longer and killed her and disposed of her in the swamp. While committing these murders, he also involved in other illegal activities such as stripping and parting out cars that he would come across while working at the service station. After he disposed of several bodies in the area around his property in Sumter, he felt he may be bringing too much attention and potential heat from the law enforcement, so he moved to Charleston. He picked up a young girl named Jackie, who was about 14. Her death was one of the most gruesome kills, in my opinion, so be advised. He kept her alive in an abandoned house for a few days, and after he sexually assaulted her, he started to slowly cut off pieces of her and then cook them and consume them in front of her. In his book, he says that he would have kept her alive longer if she hadn't been crying and whimpering the whole time, so he slit her throat and buried her in the woods. Shortly after this, he purchased a hearse and started to drive it around as his main mode of transportation. He placed a sign in the back window that read, quote, we haul anything living or dead, unquote. People would approach him and confront him on why he was driving around a hearse. This was the 1970s and life was a lot more conservative across the board, but especially in the small rural towns of South Carolina, and this behavior was screaming something's wrong. To the people that confronted him, he would say, quote, because I kill so many people, I need a hearse to haul them to my private cemetery, unquote. Some would laugh and think he was being vulgar to cause a reaction, yet his reputation was well known and made people wonder if there wasn't some truth behind his words. Another set of murders that affect me more than the rest are of Doreen, who was heavily pregnant, and her two-year-old daughter, Michelle. Gaskins told Doreen he had an old trailer that he would rent to her since she didn't have a place to stay. She could stay for free if she provided him with other services. On the way to the trailer, he stopped the hearse and had her get into the back with him. He made her strip naked and handcuffed her and had her start to perform oral on him. 
but then he grabbed her two-year-old and brought her to the back with them and began to undress her. Dorian protested and tried to stop this when he smacked her over the head with a hammer, knocking her completely out. If you want to know all of the details of what he did next, you can try to find a copy of his book. It is absolutely the worst thing I have ever imagined or have ever heard before. Without too much detail and to get over this quickly, please skip ahead a few seconds if you would like, but he murdered Doreen, Michelle, and the unborn fetus after sexually assaulting both Doreen and Michelle. He put Doreen in a pre-dug grave and slit her throat and buried her, which would eventually cause the fetus to also pass. He then buried Michelle near a tree. He didn't admit to these murders for quite some time because he knew if it was known that he, what he did to Michelle, that all the quote-unquote respect he had in prison and his street cred would be gone. They would torture him and he wouldn't be on top in that crowd. Because even in prison, among what most would consider the worst of society, exists this known law that you do not sexually assault or bring known harm to children. He let people believe at first when he admitted to killing them in exchange for getting a life sentence instead of the electric chair that he felt racially motivated to murder them. It wasn't until the release of his book that he admitted to what he actually did and what his true intentions were. He probably was racist. I mean, I, I think he definitely was. But when it came to his sexual attacks and murder, he did not discriminate. At this time, his coastal murders were happening more frequently, about once a month. He even started to anticipate the pain in a hopeful and excited way. In March of 1974, he picked up two hitchhikers thinking that they were women, but they were just long-haired boys. Never letting an opportunity go to waste, he took them down an abandoned road and sexually assaulted and tortured them. He drew a camping stove and removed the boys' testicles and fried them over the stove and ate them in front of them. To try to staunch the bleeding, he attempted to cauterize a wound by melting down some lead and pour it over the wounds. And then when he was done with the torture, he would again weigh down their bodies and dispose of them in the swamp. This was the first time his coastal kill was not that of a woman, and from this point forward, he no longer discriminated between either sex. 1975, he describes as his most killingest year. It was also the year that he began to slightly involve a man named Walter Neely in his crimes. Walter and Pee-wee had been longtime friends who met in prison and had worked together for some time. Pee-wee uses Walter to retrieve a van that belongs to three victims, two girls and a boy that Gaskins claims he was able to use his gun to gain control of them and took them further into the woods where he sexually assaulted them all and then sank them in the woods together. Since they had a van, he had disposed of the van so that no one found it and started to ask questions. He had Walter go with him to retrieve it, brought it to the auto shop and repainted it and sold it and gave Walter a good percentage of the sale. He had told Walter some fabricated story on how he had acquired this van. Gaskins continued with coastal kills and even serious kills. There are too many to get into and all the details of this episode would be so much longer, but eventually he runs into Dennis Bellamy. Dennis was Diane Bellamy Neely's brother. Diane was Walter's wife who had run off with another man, Avery Howard. So Walter is working with Pee Wee and his wife Diane leaves him for Avery. And Diane has a brother, 
Walter's brother-in-law, who is Dennis. It was through Diane that he met Dennis and his and her half-brother, Johnny Knight. Dennis was good at stealing parts for cars, and he taught everything he knew to Johnny, who was just 15 at the time. Their brothers worked with Pee-wee at the garage from time to time. All of these murders were committed alone until this time when he kills two twin brothers with the help of his friend Walter Neely. Pee-wee also tracked down and murdered Diane and Avery, Walter's wife, and the man she was having an affair with, but no one else knew this at the time. Well, the two twin brothers were thought to have been stealing from Walter and Pee-wee, and Pee-wee took them out to the swamp where he shot them both in the head, and Walter helped him hide the bodies in the swamp where he disposed of the others. Walter seemed to be unfazed by everything and even brought home a pair of shoes from one of the dead. But before long, his conscience was weighing heavy on him and he started to experience nightmares about the dead bodies in the swamp and was afraid to be alone in the dark. He went to his church and confessed everything to his priest who convinced him to go to the police and tell them everything he knows. So he did and he told about helping bury the twins and led them to where the bodies were hid. Pee-wee was arrested and would be sentenced to the electric chair. Not only did Pee-wee, like we discussed, already have quite a name for himself in the prison system, but he made mob connections during his many stints in and out of jail. Rudolf Tyner had killed a couple while he was robbing a store, and he was also on death row. Fearing he would not be actually put to death, the murdered couple's son put a hit on Tyner's head. Due to this threat, Tyner was kept in solitary confinement. Gaskins made plans to kill him, and he befriended Tyner. Pee-wee attempted to murder him by poisoning him, but that failed. He managed to get some C4 smuggled into the prison in the heel of a hollowed-out boot. He put the C4, which is an explosive, in a makeshift communication device and smuggled it into Tyner's cell, instructing him to connect the wires in a certain way so whenever he wanted drugs, he just had to use the device and it would alert Pee-wee so he could hook him up. Pee-wee instructed Tyner to test it out at a specific time that evening. Tyner was told to hold the device up to his ear and call out to Gaskins. Everything went exactly as planned, and when he heard Tyner's call, he detonated the C4, and Tyner was decapitated instantly. Gaskins was placed in solitary confinement until 1986, when they put him on death row, where he remained while also being moved from one building or another around South Carolina. While on death row, he worked with a writer, like I said earlier, to create his autobiography, Final Truth where he estimated he had killed around 100 people. But there has been speculation as to how many of his claims and the details of his book are actually true, and not just a fabrication to continue to inflate his ego and reputation, leaving his notoriety for the ages. So many of the bodies were never located, so there was no way to truly tie him to those claims. However, he was able to cut some deals with the prosecution in exchange for telling them where some of the bodies were stashed. Whenever they searched where he advised them to look, they would locate the remains of someone else, meaning that, at the very least, parts of his story were true. His confessions are also very oddly specific on how he liked to do certain elements of the torture that make the confessions seem a lot more believable. Maybe it is all true, maybe he is just very good at storytelling, but I'm much less likely to believe that is truth, given his background. 
Not that uneducated people are unable to be good storytellers, and he is, in my opinion, allegedly, obviously dealing with narcissistic personality disorder, sociopathy, and psychopathy, but the details that he provided in his book were not elaborated by the writer. As claimed in the book, they just helped facilitate taking Pee-wee's writing and type them to be printed and distributed. It did not change his grammar or edit the spelling mistakes, and there were a lot, if you couldn't tell by some of the quotes I've shared. The state of South Carolina executed Donald Pee-wee Gaskins on February 6, 1991 at 1.04 a.m. He entered the execution chamber and sat in the electric chair, unattended. Before they placed the hood over his head, he smiled and gave a thumbs up and said, quote, I'm ready to go, unquote. His life was a series of terrible, horrible things, mostly done at his own hand, but could his upbringing have something to do with the monster that he became? He wasn't given any guidance, he was not educated, and he was allowed to just be bad. And then he was also taught that if you do something wrong, you're beaten. So I believe that that has a huge impact on him, especially that the severity that everything happened at, at the early, early ages that he experienced them, along with the fact that he drank kerosene and was extremely obviously affected by that. I think that it definitely had a huge impact on him. But what do you think? That's the end of the story. Um, please get in touch with me. Please find me on social so you can share your thoughts and opinions. But please be respectful. We never know who is listening and reading. And if a victim or family member were to read these things or see those comments, you know, I just want to ensure that we're all doing our part to be kind. These are really terrible topics, so it's tough. But still, spread kindness, please. <laughs> I know that's a big ask. But could have things could things have been done to prevent such a horrible existence? His entire life seemed to be fraught with hardship and turmoil, which he perpetrated. But it's just such a sad story. As always, if you find this episode interesting, please like it or share it or leave a rating, whatever you're able to do, wherever you're listening. It really does help support this podcast. I also hope that you will subscribe if you haven't already done so. And if you're able, please give me that rating. The next episode is going to be a bit different than what I've done so far, um, but I'm really excited to change things up a bit. It's going to be a different type of format as my significant other, Chris, will be joining me and we will be discussing the United States government siege on the Mount Carmel compound in Waco, Texas, where the small community that referred to themselves as the Branch Davidians resided. So please make sure you're subscribed and have your notifications turned on so you're notified when the new episode is released. Please be kind to yourself and others and be vigilant and protect yourself out there. Thank you so much and until next time, peace!